Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. That's what we want, Chuck. That's what I'm hearing. Don't die number 43. What we want, what we really want, is somebody in Ohio to start a Don't Die chapter of Ohio. And what it means is usually like, what are me and Chuck and sometimes Mike? We're treatment professionals. We're sober guys, first and foremost. We Real sober guys, not pseudo-sober guys, <laughs> right. right? There's a lot of pseudo-sobriety being proselytized these days. Yeah. Uh, you can have two guys that are in like the profession and then one guy like me who's not in, but now, just sort of pipes in every once in a while. Now it can be sober gals, right? Hey, there you go. Sober gals in Ohio that work in That's treatment. That's a great idea. You want to... Now here, I, I, I've been trying to get people inspired. And other than the Wisconsin guys, they haven't gotten... Uh, the Wisconsin guys taken the ball and rolled with it better than us. Yeah, They're doing it better now, than let's us. Let's talk about the Don't Die guys. They sent us shirts. They're awesome guys. It's Patrick, Kevin, and Ryan. And they're, um, they started the Don't Die chapter. And it's like uh, it's on the podcast. You can search yeah. for it, Don't Die and so, Wisconsin. But what I think is we haven't really described how it benefits the people who will start it. So here's what I want to tell you. What's your main problem if you work in treatment? It is trying to show your value to the treatment center. I can tell you that I've run treatment centers or worked in them for the last 22 years this Friday. This Friday is my wow. 22 happy years. happy anniversary. I started, hey, nice. I started anniversary. working at MAP when I had five months sobriety right which is outlawed now and you can never do that um but but so my entire sobriety i've been working around drug addicts i wasn't working in a professional capacity i was just volunteering and helping and being around and you know driving people to meetings or whatever just being helpful you have a tendency to dive right into things bob i oh i loved it really really i loved it yeah and Buddy Arnold, the guy who ran it, was so fucking funny and cool and just the what greatest great guy. guy, man. So I got to hang out with him, the greatest drug counselor, he and Gloria Scott, the greatest greatest drug counselors I've ever known. I mean, I saw him do things like a surgeon. He was like a drug counselor surgeon. Um, I, I always tell the uh, story of when we brought a very successful musician to him, and... Um, and the guy was, you know, the musician was high out of his mind and looked like he was going to die. And and Buddy just looked at him and said, everybody says you're some kind of fucking musical genius. And that was a weird thing to say. <laughs> you know, right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. That's all I hear is how you're just a genius and everybody talks about you. He goes, you don't look like a fucking genius to me. And and that And the guy was looking down. And he just looked up for the first time all day because me and the guy that brought him there had been with him for like four hours. And he's just, you know how they hunch over and they don't make eye contact. And and he just, he looked up and he looked at Buddy and he said, I never say that. And Buddy said, well, you know, can you, you probably can't even fucking read music. And he took a chart, like a horn jazz chart and he threw it in front of this guy and said, if you're a real music, genius musician, you can tell me what that means. And the person actually was a musician and could read and said, what is it that you want me to tell you? Like the tempo or what the, do you want me to sing them? And he said, da, 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 da. you know, he was reading the music. And Buddy grabbed the music scene back and said, maybe you are a fucking genius. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> and, great. and he said, you're the first rock musician I've ever known oh who could read music. <laughs> and he goes, I want to help you. <laughs> you know, he can, All right. He can help so many musicians because people respected him because he was a jazz musician. You know, yeah. He was an accomplished jazz musician. But, but, that he, but he had completely switched the tables. That's not what I was doing. That's not what other interventions would have done. That's not what other treatment intake departments would have done. He talked about music. Then he's basically in that claim, I want to help you. Do you want help? Meaning, because you're a genius, it it flattered the person. He would have been resistant to everything. And he just sat there. And and he said, so so if I if I arrange for you to go somewhere, will you let these two guys take you there? And he said, Yeah, okay. 
And he would have never said that had Buddy not read him, looking down, I got to sit here for this bullshit. It was just the greatest thing. And that was one of the, that was when I had like five months of writing. I was like, I just want to do this and be around this guy, right? And so, so if you're a treatment professional and everybody that works in treatment is trying to stand out from their peers and show whatever it is, whether you work in intake or you're a tech who wants to be sometimes, sometimes, someday a counselor or a counselor that wants to be equally respected to the therapist or whatever. There's always a political thing going on in the rehab. If you start the chapter of don't die and then you say <laughs> that you're associated with me and Dr. Drew and all this kind of stuff, it immediately puts you at an advantage right i'm just being honest and you can tell your boss you know maybe you could be on the show next week (laughs) maybe maybe not we tried to get chuck's boss on here (laughs) he wants us to come to him (laughs) oh he wants you to come visit so bad i'm gonna come he goes what do i have to do to get bobby down here i've been there before you worked there i said said, he goes do do i need to send him an uber (laughs) (laughs) oh jesus (laughs) no i'm coming down there but so and the reason why is all of a sudden it'll help you um, in ways that you can't imagine. So Don't Die is just a slogan I came up with. I was like, I started about two years ago uh, because kids were coming in the treatment center and I talked to them and I started noticing like three weeks later I would hear that they died. That had never happened to me. I'd been working in treatment for 20 years. I didn't have people consistently in my group and then here two months later they're dead. That had not happened. This was starting to happen on a regular basis. And it was like, what the fuck is going on? And so I did it one night. I said, um, because a girl who had been in the group the last week before, the Tuesday before, was now dead. And we were all kind of reeling from it, right? She was in my group on Tuesday. This was the next Tuesday. She was dead. And I said, listen, maybe we're getting too highfalutin with this drug treatment bullshit. The whole goal is to not die. That's the whole goal, right? That's the baseline goal of of all of this. Those were the best talks for those of you that weren't in the area. Bob would go to places and just bring this discussion to the addicts. At the other place you were at, right? He'd bring this talk to, to anyone that would have him, you know, and just trying to get it out there. There was no glory in it. There was no... um. There was no, he wasn't getting anything out of it except for getting the word out. I was going peanut butter and sugar sandwich at, <laughs> at Chapman. What was, yeah, Chapman. I did it. Because Chapman is very much like Cry Help, right? And it, every time I walked in there, it reminded me like a Cry Help. Because Cry Help has a really deep place in my soul. It helped me a lot, right? Being there for months and months. And I always ate, because there's always this in the in kind of cry help type grassroots kind of street level treatment centers like Chapman, there's always peanut butter and, and white bread. <laughs> yes. And so at cry help, I basically, because I couldn't eat the food. They have noodles with like, with like meat in it. <laughs> like I couldn't. The whole Ravioli. time I was, in, I was in cry help. No, they just, they, yeah, they take like, no, they just take a bunch of 99-cent store noodles and mix uh. it in with a bunch of hamburger meat and call it food. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's food, My but it's not food. My uncle used to call that slumgullion. <laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. It's not really food that Bob Forrest from Palm Springs, California, is associated with eating. <laughs> so, it's so I really salmon. So, yeah. Yeah. But... But this one, even when I was going to rehab, like Hazelin has good food, but as you slide down the chain of quality of whatever you want to call it of treatment and you end up in really the hardcore programs, I just, the food I could never get with. Like, so three out of four, (laughs) three out of five times a week that I would go in the hall for dinner, I'd be like, I can't eat this. (laughs) But I could always eat peanut butter and sugar sandwiches. And they're I, good. Then I I let him, lived off them. So every time I went to do that thing down at where you were working, I always had a peanut butter and sugar sandwich just because it's the thing that you eat when you're in that kind of a program, right? If you're me. Right. So I've been saying it for a couple of years consistently wherever anybody will listen. The whole goal of drug awareness, drug education, drug treatment is to not die. 
<laughs> that's the baseline. That's what we're trying to teach. Now, I think we just got a little highfalutin because the insurance companies insisted we talk about shit that we don't even really understand, which is right. like trauma and 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 abuse and grieving. I, I think I'm certified to do all these things that I don't. I don't really know. How to and do. no, I, I leave it to the experts. I let them do the EMDR and the and the CBT and that stuff because that's what they do. That's what they practice. That's what they're good at. You know. So well, I let as those, I let those people as I it. went along the chain of command, there was all these things you could pick up right along the way. Like at, especially at a hospital, they'd have a, a two day in service and you can be a grief counselor. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll go to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have a certification in grief counseling. I don't even know the first things about grief. You go, Hey, <laughs> don't bummer. Be, don't, bummer, be, dude. don't be so bummed. Dude. <laughs> well, yeah. Right. Okay. So I just think drug treatment, got a little too heady and a little too elevated because of what the insurance industry was asking us to quantify, right? Right. right. And maybe we just missed the point of, like, listen, the goal here is you're a drug addict and you're highly likely to die from it. And so why you're here is to get yourself educated so you don't die from it. And the whole don't die thing became like, that's the whole goal. I don't care if you learn anything here. I don't care if you abide by any rule. I don't care if anything of this stays with you at all. Just don't die. And think about what that means, don't die. Right? And I think it's helped some kids. Right? It's a simple slogan, don't die. Right? So one girl told me that she went back and she was relapsing and she was shooting dope and she kept hearing my voice saying, don't die. I like that. Oh, wow, man. I like that. She didn't either. You know what you I know, mean? You know, people think you're exact, like the average person who's not involved with everyday drug addicts like you are and Chuck is. And, and me Are you eating, ex- Mike? Is Mike eating while he's <laughs> producing the show from another room? Oh, my God. I had a chip in my mouth. <laughs> Wait, is, I, there, is there a loaf I, of bread and peanut butter on the counter? Did you know that the coffee sugar on it? Is that what you did? Because I used to use the coffee sugar on it. Yeah, yeah. You just open the packet. Yeah, because there's never any real sugar. Yeah. You gotta, uh, in every rehab, I, in, 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 you know, there's a place in Hawthorne. It used to be a 280-bed facility called Sobertown. <laughs> right bob hold on whatever you they always had to- peanut butter and sugar <laughs> always a loaf of bread <laughs> a jar of peanut butter you and then nothing talk, to put bob? on it so you got to get the what? sugar you should talk everybody can hear you chewing whatever you have in your mouth <laughs> sucking some sort of like loud nicotine gum nicotine oh, gum that's it's the only thing right. keeping me sane all right well i, I understand that. okay so so um the point that don't die is really critical and and you know, and I just started thinking, like, that's what we need to bring. Because when you say to a kid who's shooting fentanyl, or just was two weeks ago, mm-hmm. don't die, it immediately brings the present reality of his situation. When you talk about his childhood trauma, that's not real to him. You know, you're living in a, in a Dr. Bloom, who owned uh, Pasadena Recovery Center. He passed on a few years ago. Greatest guy, greatest psychiatrist. He said, you know, most addicts are just walking gonads. (laughs) That's a good one. Like, why do we think they're going to comprehend this deep shit Mm -hmm. we're talking about? You just need to steer them in the right direction, keep them safe, keep them contained, keep them accountable, keep them going in the right direction. Then later on, when they become fully functioning humans... You could then start talking about this other stuff, right? At the six-month point, at the year point, year and a half point. That's when you can really start to comprehend trauma Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, feelings of loneliness, helpless, and loss. But in the first two months, like, the brain doesn't even work right. You're thinking about food, sex, blah, Bah. Very primal, and then, and then again, and then food addicts and are sex, very and primal. And when they're really sober, food, sex, cigarettes, food, sex. Cigarettes. I didn't even have somebody to have sex with. I had sex with myself most of the time. Wow, you know that was I was in the LA County Jail, of course. <laughs> I guess I could have I could have had some sex, but I literally wasn't. You, I wasn't you, you're busy violating socks instead. <laughs> Just didn't even care. That's but, hard to hide in a seventy-five man cell. <laughs> well, I was on the top bunk where all the softies are. Oh my goodness! Do you know? Do you know the rules of L.A. County Jail? I know you were in Orange County Jail. It's though. three tall. Is Orange County three tall? No. Okay, so there's three bunks, right? Yeah. Three tall. 
all the softies and all the wimps and the people that are easily beaten up and and scared shitless are always on the top bunk. You know why? Because the fl- the fluorescent lights are right above it. Nice. And all the all the real cool people don't want the lights shining in their and eyes. And the guard in the glass cage, he can uh, he can see you. see you up. Yeah, that's another thing. I never thought of that. They can always see the top bunk, bottom bunk. They can't see because there's a million of them across nice. the room. So. You know, you just be up there with the fluorescent light. Putting on a show for the guards. From your, from your hey, look at this. Wait, I'm going to picture it real quick. There he goes again. Oh, I don't know if I, Chuck, I don't really want to look at that. Chuck just looked at me, then closed his eyes and did a visual of me up on the top oh, bunk goodness. in 1996. That would have been in February of 1996, huh. 22 years ago, last yeah. month. So, mm-hmm. so anyways, I, I just really believe that simpler the better don't die and so please somebody some treatment professional in ohio and pennsylvania and kentucky and west virginia just start you know start having a group once a week the the don't die group or 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 start a podcast they're really easy to do if you've got an iphone you can do it um they're not that hard to do uh and just start joining with your friends and talking about how do we help these young people not die that's, you know, I don't care how they don't die. I just keep them alive until they can figure it out. Yeah. Right? That's a simple message. Keep it's them alive very until simple. they figure it out. I had to tell, I did an intervention earlier today, and I just said, you know, when you start getting into these dangerous drugs, you're not going to find any sympathy, right? It's a 15-year-old kid, right? I was like, listen, when you, if you want to argue about you're just smoking pot, you're not just smoking pot. You're doing prescription opioids and benzos. You can die. You're you're a minor. This is not going to work. Your life is going to be miserable, or you're going to start listening and following direction and trying to get a, get out from this kind of direction you're going. And you know, when I was 15, I I just I don't know that I could even comprehend death. If we're t- if we're telling somebody that their brain is growing that they've got another 11 years of that brain growing to go on. How can we expect somebody with an ungrown brain to understand something that heavy? I don't, I don't know what this, what the answer is. I wish I knew somebody who was an expert with wow, adolescence. That was like way over my head. Man, but the, with that but ungrown I know, I know, but here's what I think. I just, I'll tolerate pot, pot with teenagers. I, I don't really care. I mean, that's for some other people to fight that battle. I care about kids when they're doing dangerous things they can die from. Okay. Do you uh, see tinctures and wax and all that as part of that? Or just you just talking about the weed, the plant? I'm just talking about dying. I'm interested in people. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty... Uh, I'm not really a control freak about people. I really don't give a fuck. I, like that, I think that sustained me in drug treatment. I truly don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck about a lot of things, and I certainly don't give a fuck about controlling people that are easily influenced. Like that's why I've never become an AA guru. I don't give a fuck enough to want a bunch of retards to follow what I say. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> nice. And, and 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 God bless some of your friends that love it. <laughs> but but I just like I don't know. I've never been somebody that wanted the admiration of people that i that i were easily uh, you could gain their admiration right so the example being it goes all the way back to music career i didn't really care what Thelonious monster fans thought of me they could say oh beautiful mess sucked and you're a sellout and whatever i'd be like yeah okay i don't care but when keith morris said it to me i'll never forget it it's still to this day just thinking about it makes me you know sick to my stomach me and keith were living together i was making this overproduced bullshit mike played on some of it and i was playing this one song in the living room of our house and he just came out of his bedroom and he stood there and listened to like two minutes of it and he goes sounds like a budweiser commercial (laughs) (laughs) it was recorded at at, at capital And it was like all studio musicians. Yeah, it's like all kids sound like a Budweiser commercial. You know, we were all all had to join the union and yeah, you know, get 
but, it, but if you remember, he didn't even say something negative. He didn't say it sucks or you're a sellout or anything. He just said that statement. Like- it sounds like a Budweiser commercial. And then he went in the kitchen and got something and went back to his bedroom. I just, I almost started crying. <laughs> so I've respected what other people that do what I do say, right? I do care what Warren thinks of me. I do care what Evan thinks of me. I do care what you think of me. But I don't care what fucking people in AA think of me. They don't know what being a treatment professional means. People have been saying it for 20 years to me. You make money off the 12-step. Fuck you. Okay, yeah. Make millions of dollars (laughs) off the 12-step. Who fucking cares what you think? Yeah. You know what I mean? No, it's easier to agree with people that are making stupid (laughs) accusations and trying to straighten them out. I don't have time to educate them all. You've been accused of that, I'll bet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I don't get into arguments with them. I agree. Like, yeah, I got totally rich. That's why I live in a one-bedroom apartment in South Pasadena, because I just made so much money off the 12th I just made a thousand bucks (laughs) taking a guy through the fourth. (laughs) That's the best. Four steps are the best. (laughs) Yeah. But, but the, the idea that I've always cared what my peers of songwriters thought, right? Mm. I care, and now I care what treatment professionals, real treatment professionals that do the day-in, day-out work of it, right? I don't care what other people think of me, right? So that, that's been a it's really... It's tough and tireless work. I mean, I look at you and, how you and your work ethic, and I just get, like, amazed. People don't even know. I mean, i got to blow your horn a little bit, you know? Ooh, ah, blow my. his horn. It's Yikes. fucking unbelievable. I mean, I swear, I you know, and it's not the money. I know you. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fucking, not the money. It's not the fucking money. It's because, you know, you care about people, man, and that's a little bit different than other people. I don't. But we know. have good friends that have negative opinions about it. I don't really care. I, you know, if... If I'll give you an example, a friend of ours is a songwriter, said something negative or de- doesn't like the treatment industry. I fine. He's criticizing something he knows nothing about. If mm-hmm. he said Bob's a shitty songwriter, I'd listen because that's what he is, right? But he's not saying that, right? He's saying, you know, something he doesn't know what we do every day, right? Right? right. I had an argument years ago with a, with a AA buddy, and he, you know, he said, he said, uh, you know, you're just making money off other people's uh, suffering. And I said, well, I know, but, but the, there's reasons for that. There's reasons why the recovery in, in, industry has blossomed and become the thing that it is. It's because the 12-step world is not doing its part anymore. <laughs> and those it's people, true. And those it's people true. are trying to find a chink in the armor. You know what I mean? They, but want, you know they what? want to find something wrong with what you're doing because you're helping fucking people. You but, know? but you I know why? Because it's easy to destroy. It's hard to create. But, but my point being is working with others is a really important thing to me. I felt like... Mike, you were by my house that Thursday night meeting that I had at my house. It was a, my whole life was dedicated to, I had somebody kick into my house. I was weaning people with Suboxone. I was fucking helping people for nothing, letting them live in my house. Mm-hmm. D- Diane, this friend of mine, shot up dope in front of Elijah when he was like 11 years old. I was like, what the fuck? I mean, there's morality in that. It's like, I'm letting you stay here for free. I love you, Diane. What the fuck are you doing? You know? I was I was doing that twelve step because I believed if I work the program as as described in the Big Book of AA I won't use, right? So I took it literal, like working with others. I always had somebody at my house living in my. I had like a big house, like you know, I had m- music money. I had Elijah's room and then this other room and then two other spare rooms. One that was kind of a library music room. So somebody was staying at my house kicking or newly sober for free for years, right? Nobody else is doing that in Echo Park in Silver Lake, right? And then I became the dumping ground. I was having people I didn't even know stay at my house because somebody I knew from Silver Lake would say, <laughs> hey, dude, this, need, this dude needs a kick and he's a really good friend of mine. Like, I would say, why does he stay at your house, Renee? <laughs> like, why is he? Well, you're the one doing it. And then I just realized, like, I can't do this anymore. And I'm tired of saying that the recovery industry is this bad thing, right? It's not. It's because the 12-step community has stopped doing the the gift that working with new people is, really working with them, having them live in your house, having them drink coffee with them in the morning. That's what Bill Wilson did. That's what's described in the big book of AA, and nobody does it anymore. What does it say? You're gonna, you, better get re- you better keep some beer in your fridge. In my case, it was better be able to have some Suboxone around the house and not take it yourself. 
Right, right, and some Narcan, and but you know, and Doctor Bob worked in a hospital. No one ever accused him of of anything. There, there are there are things. There is treatment. I, there is good to treatment. Just because some people were able to walk off the street into a meeting and they changed their worlds doesn't mean that everybody. No, I don't think not everybody did. I think it's the people that did have that experience where they walked into a meeting and were able to set everything aside, and they were done. Those are the people that got the harshest words for treatment because. For some reason, they think that they're better. No, that's that. how Mike got sober. He doesn't criticize treatment. No, he's not one of the people. He's not one of those people that I. Who was I? Ta- it was Kevin Smith was on. Uh, Help is where ne- you find it, man. Neil, Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You yeah. ever watch him? Okay, he was talking with Kevin Smith, and that's what Kevin Smith was talking about. How when he was younger, it was so much easier to just destroy stuff. And it's so hard to create exactly what you were talking about. He goes, you know, to, but to get out, I decided I was going to create, you know, and I've always been more of a, a Dadaist where I'd rather, you know, deconstruct things. But to to be more creative and to get out there, to use whatever is yours, whatever your magic is, bring that to the table to help an addict. With Buddy Arnold, it was his ability to read people and see what they needed. You have that too. Um, I have to find that in me anytime I get a new client. It's not... It's not the same shit over and over and over. It's finding, it's getting to know them, seeing what ticks in them and being able to speak to them at that level. I can't do that at 12-step meetings, but I can do that at work. And if I'm getting paid for it, that's okay because at the end, we have, there is a difference being made. With so many young people and the millennials are really having a hard time getting with the older people in the 12-step programs, you know? Yeah, why do you think that is? You see know. it, right? I, I don't understand it. Because all the people I idolized when I was 30 and trying to get sober, they were all in their 60s, and they were totally cool to me. Gloria Scott, Buddy you know, Bob Timmons, you know, Harold's owns not that much older. He's like five years older. But he had twenty years sobriety. But the they, people but they were, were cool older, people. and they and they and they were relatable. But they were cool before they got sober, though. Too a lot of that is who they were and who they are. I mean, I don't think being sober has made me any smarter for sure. I don't even know if it's made me any nicer. I think I'm the same person, just unaffected. So then, why are the millennials not clicking with the twelve step world? Because it's a huge problem. I wish I had that answer. Maybe maybe someone. Can call, uh, and and I'll talk about it all the way around. Is are millennials just so used to the world fitting to them that treatment works for them because treatment is does fit to the client? You just described it. We try to figure out what will help the client. It's so fitted to their needs. AA is not. AA is just AA. NA is just NA. You're you've got to fit to it. Right. Right. Right, and so what the job of old timers or people with time is to help them make it fit, and somehow that there's a disconnect there, that it's it's supposed to fit, and if it doesn't fit, then you're not ready, and you don't need to be here, you know. Nobody ever asked me, and all that I was going in and out. I drank in an AA meeting. I would stop, and all the people driving out of the parking lot from the AA meeting would see me walk down the street into a liquor store and then be walking down the street with beer. Smog used to do that. He'd see me, I'd, I'd just go to the AA meeting and then on the way home there was a little market, I'd get a little six pack and be walking down Fountain and the AA people would toot their horn. Like, you okay, Bob? Well, my, the- my theory is that the baby boomers are the ones that are responsible to pass it down to the next generation, which are the millennials. And the baby boomers are traditionally just selfish bastards you know what i mean and, and um i don't think i don't really I think traditionally so, yeah i think well really yeah yeah i kind of am yeah self-centered sure. well but wait a minute here's an interesting thing alcoholics anonymous describes all variation of selfishness right as the warped personality glass in hand we've warped our minds into selfishness then, because Bill Wilson was born in 1896, so he was a part of the great generation, it's called, right? Okay. Or even prior to that. So, How come the, I can't be part of the fucking great generation, man? Because <laughs> you you you, you'd be dead <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's so a great then, fucking name. So then I mean? we, we as baby boomers are known as the most selfish generation that ever lived. That's right. right. It's, it's one of the inherent qualities of baby boomers. That's right. That's what right? I was talking about, John. So maybe that's why the AA explosion in the 60s and 70s and 80s is because it was 
it's designed for selfish people and you have the selfish, <laughs> most selfish generation hitting it at its, you know what I mean? If, if AA was born in 1936, it so really, it dies it here, really, I'm saying, <laughs> does, it, does it die with the baby boomers? Congratulations, guys. You killed it. <laughs> a whole wow, generation. But, but think about it, because AA doesn't really become a thing more than 100 people until 1941. So for five years, it was like 100 people, 200 people, right? Not setting the world on fire, right? Then it starts to grow pretty quickly with chapters but not in volume of people so in the los angeles chapter i spoke to somebody who was that guy old guy fred remember him yeah fred, he brownell. Knew, fred brownell knew some of the original aas from the mid 40s it was like 46 it started in la right yeah and he's amazing and it was very small it was just in westwood but that's where the first AA meeting was in westwood right and so so all of a sudden, you know, it's growing, but it's, you know, and it's talked about as this movement or whatever, but it's really not until the 1970s that it really catches fire. The 1960s, late 60s, 70s, it just explodes, right? Guess who was starting to have drinking problems right around then? The baby boomers. Right. Right? And maybe it's that explosion and maybe... You know, I'm sure that it's a flexible, fluid enough situ uh, a program, n not as it's described by people, but how it's written in the book is very flexible and philosophical <coughs> and fluid. Bill Wilson said an interesting thing in, I think, 1967 or 68. He said, you know, I'm, I'm fearful that AA will die on the vine if it doesn't cherish the new people, right? And he had started to see that already, that like they weren't liking these young hippies and young people coming into it, right? Mm -hmm. And there was this right. big kind of problem with drug addicts and all that, and that's how N.A. started. And hence um, the name of the grapevine, yeah. Right. And so Bill Wilson said, I, I don't have faith that AA as an institution will survive. It will die from within. But I do believe as long as there are two people who who share a common problem and have this book they can overcome so he saw a day where aa as as this system that we grew up in and know would die away but the book would survive and something new would come of two alcoholics trying maybe, to solve their maybe, problem. Maybe that's all we're seeing is the, the evolution of that. And the, yeah, it the, might the, be. The evolution. I mean, this maybe that time. vision came to him when he took those, those acid trips. Man. Yeah, I might have. But I, I really believe he was, he was a people person. He knew people. Like, and, well, and you can see that in the book. He, he makes it so that whether you're... A working stiff from Pittsburgh or an elite Brooklyn law student, you can understand this thing. He made it very universal to a lot of different people, right? That he made some mistakes, but they were understandable coming from the when he wrote it. And for the time, it was very inclusive for the time. That's what I'm saying. He was thinking way outside the box yeah. for that point in time. Oh my God. He wasn't, he wasn't demanding a lot of the members, which at that time you had to meet criteria for membership. Mm -hmm. And the Oxford group was Methodist Christianity, um, temperance, and all this kind of political stuff. And in AA, he just said, listen, we want to make the birth as wide as we can to get people. Did you hear the story about the black guys that wanted to come to AA? It's a great no. story. No. So those two black guys find out about AA in the early 40s. And they, they show up at the Brooklyn office, right? At the general service office, where Bill Wilson okay. and his secretary right. and a couple people worked. <laughs> okay. And they were like, can we help you? <laughs> and they're right. like, we've been reading the book, and we're, um, we, we think we're alcoholic. And Bill Wilson said, okay, um, there's a meeting tonight. Come back here and you know, come a little early. So the guys come back or something, and there's these two black guys. Now, up until this point, AA is all white people. Two black guys are in the, the main headquarters of AA, and, you know, Bill Wilson's like, uh, okay. And the AAs are like, what are those two black guys doing here? And he's hey. like, well, they're, <clears throat> hey, they're hey, alcoholics. Hey. <laughs> there's some coloreds over there. <laughs> they want to join our group. I believe that was the term that they was used commonly there. Yep. They want to join our group. And they said, no, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to have a meeting. 
So they had an emergency. <laughs> they had a steering committee. Uh, steering, yeah, whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> what is it called? The meeting. The steering committee. Yeah, yeah. They get they together, change the meeting. rules, yeah. And so they said, you know, um, this is going to disrupt. This is not good for the group, uh, blah, 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 blah. And Bill Wilson said, okay, so what's the solution? Let's be solution-oriented. And they said, well, they can use the book and go have their own meetings amongst themselves. And the guy, Bill Wilson, said, okay, how are they supposed to know how a meeting works? And they all seemed a little puzzled. And he said, how about we allow them to sit in for a while, for a few meetings, so they can observe what a meeting is hmm. so that then they can go back and start their own with the book and whatever. And so the two guys sat in the meeting, came the next week, and all of a sudden, nobody noticed that they were there anymore. How they weird is that? They to like them. Huh. Right? They became But Bill people, Wilson right? had to read that room and go, I'm the guy in charge. I can mandate that they be here. That's going to make bad feelings all around. Um, they admit that, that, that Alcoholics Anonymous should be for everybody. But this is a hard fit for some of you, right? And, you know, young people nowadays can't really realize a racist world like that. I grew up in no. a racist world like that. I think young people really need to do their history reading about what this country was like as little as, as 40 years ago, right? I see that, that there were some people that weren't even inherently bad people that had inherently bad beliefs yeah. because of what they, they were, were taught. They were institutional beliefs. Right. And, They're coming and, back, and, ironically. And it, was, and, it was across, <laughs> and it was across the board, and some things were absolutely across the board. Well, you know the term, if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it? This new racism in America is people not knowing their history and okay. repeating it. Oh, yeah. It definitely is. So people need to be, be... Yeah, my dad was like that. He was, like I'd say... By modern standard, he was a racist, right? No doubt about it, right? By 1940s and 50s standards, he was just a white middle-class guy. Just an Archie guy, Bunker. Right, just an Archie. right. And, and what's interesting is we want to always hold people to these new standards and not allow them to evolve to those standards. That's why I don't like the shoving things down people's throats like trans, transgender bathrooms and... You know what I mean? You just had a point in America where 70-something percent of Americans were in favor of, of same-sex marriage. And you had to push the agenda further with, uh, with a lot of more hard for the public to, to digest, right? And, and you're a racist or homophobic or a horrible person if you don't, if you don't agree with this. That's why we have Trump. Right? And that's also why people stop listening. You know, if you tell me that I'm that if you tell me that if I don't agree with you on everything that I'm this this or that, I, I can't hear that. I'm not going to hear you when, anymore. When when you get a federal mandate of same sex marriage, it solves way more problems than than not having it and then making it about other issues, right? And and you know, I just, I just, I never thought I'd see a day where within my lifetime where there would be that much public support for same-sex marriage. It was beautiful to me because I believed in it since I was ten years old. But the idea that we're going to follow this up and and push other more, you know, hard for the mass population of America to digest and. And I, I think Bill Wilson showed a be beautiful way of doing it, which is, okay, so how are they going to know how? Let's be practical. So if we just say, we can't, you can't come to these white people meetings, you need to go and start your own meetings, but we don't show them how a meeting works, how are they going to know how to do it? Right. And then eventually, after a couple of weeks, they didn't even notice that they were there in attendance. And that's what broke the color line in AA. That's how great. How crazy is that? In, you're talking about in the early 1940s. The, the, the army wasn't even desegregated. <laughs> Beautiful story, man. But AA was, right? So the reason why I think an organization that great, how can it be that it's, that it's not responding to this crisis of America? How could America? it be so closed-minded and exclusive instead of exclu inclusive like its founders like were? What, the example being, if there's a millennial in there that hates AA and doesn't like God and thinks the steps are bullshit, how does that harm the person who believes it? Like, let the person share that. You don't, 
I, the best response to that I've always found is not to share about that, just to ignore that mm-hmm. and share whatever was the next thought that you were going to share. But every time I've seen some young person be all, you know, kind of ridiculous and offensive and insulting to the group or to the traditions or basically the institutions of AA, rather than tolerate it, it's then comp- it's commented on in the next several shares. Right. Right? Just ignore it. The person said their piece. Let's move on. They're not the center of the universe. I think traditionally AA knew that. Like the greater consciousness right. of it. Like why respond to shit? Why, why Who cares? Yeah, why would you? What what is the purpose of that? If 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 I'm if I'm allowing someone their stuff and they're allowing me mine, I don't have to bag on it. I don't I, there's no reason for me to be offended by your belief. Why would I be offended by someone else's belief? Someone else says, "Oh, that God is bullshit, and uh, you know, it's only for idiots and all that stuff." That's okay. Just like you were talking about. Well, that's what their their life experience has brought them to that point where they say that thing. You know, what? that's I'll okay. T- I'll tell you. Here, I'm an atheist, and everybody knows it. So, so not for uh, long. Wait, yeah, uh, you're getting closer. I know. Now. If if we can turn one little township the, in the Ohio book of around, but. But the fact is, I've been pretty outspoken about it since before I even played music. In college, I was. So most people um, who have strong faith don't try to argue with it. They just accept it and say, oh, you know, they might be inquisitive. They ask, like, what were you raised? And I say Catholic. And they go, oh, well, okay. (laughs) Right? But But then there's the Catholic that'll get offended. People of faith, of true faith, like my Auntie Abby never questioned it. She never worried about it. You know what I mean? She didn't argue about it. No Jewish people have ever argued with me about it, ever. <laughs> right? I swear to God, I'm telling you an honest truth. But, but evangelical Christians, for the most part, are the ones who, who just that bothers. Right? And they want to save me or whatever. Mormons a little bit too. But I don't have that many Mormon friends. Right, I do have some Mormon friends. They're in, they're in the saving business. But but it was, but for the most part, ninety percent of my friends have some sort of faith. Only about five to ten percent comment on uh, like, and I realized through the years, it's the people who don't have faith that just have a a religion that they associate themselves with. But they're really questioning it too. They they seem to want to discuss it and be angry about it. And like, what do you think happens after you die? I go, I don't know. What do you think happens after you die? And so I always say, because I'm really interested in what people think after they die. What is, you know, most people believe in heaven or whatever. So what's heaven like? How does the whole procedure go? Who gets to get into it? How do you know you're getting into it? You need to buy a ticket. Well, no, the, 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 the strange thing, I, I don't think many Americans can get into it, right? I don't, because it says for, for a wealthy man to get into heaven is like a, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, right? What is America obsessed with? Personal wealth. I don't know if they changed the rules about that camel and that eye of a needle, yeah, how can that but, apply, actually? I mean, with your Jimmy Swaggerts and your, and your Pat Robertsons. He's the richest guy ever. No, but it's just, it's just even in, in just petty wealth like my family has, I, I just think like, you know, like your whole focus has been your 401k. It hasn't been cloth and naked or feed the poor. It's been your 401k. So right in American lifestyle is the acceptance of a, of a, belief system that is contrary to the heaven concept if you believe the bible i don't know a lot of you know i kind of grew up catholic i read a lot of it i became born again in high school i read a lot more it was Um, a popular thing in the 70s yeah so did i i became born again in huntington beach so so many cute girls were born again i think it was the acid i was taking no i i remember when i did it at tony's house the guy that played in the popsicles that friend of steve pettit's band and steve pettit steve pettit was (laughs) he was he was he was he was a great guitar player and a witness to me he witnessed to me (laughs) and and he and like it was like the most, you know, the coolest girls in Huntington Beach and Costa Mesa and Newport were born again. So I was like, 
Not that I only became born again for that, but that certainly was a good, you know, to be a part of that world. Said the guy on the top bunk (laughs) masturbating like a monkey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. But but anyways, it's funny. Like, I have some people of really strong faith. Father Terry is a big AA. He's never questioned it. He knows, you know, I don't believe. He doesn't, like, question it. He, he, um, you know, through the years, I don't see him as much anymore, but through the years, he would always say, are you okay, Robert? And I would be like, yeah, I'm okay. Because I went to him to have a, a sit-down about religion. Did I don't you, think I've I, ever heard you call Robert before. That's yeah. just kind of weird. Do you? He knows my name is Bob and calls me Robert. <laughs> Why does the priest do that? Did I tell you the story about him? So I wanted to sit down and talk about my Catholic school upbringing. Guy, enlighten me with one sentence. So I go, I asked him if we could meet for lunch, and he said, Why? He knew why, because I'm a fucking Catholic. I want to vent a while. <laughs> right? so, I think it's so, part of it, right? So we sit down, and he goes, we're eating. And he goes, okay, shoot. And I go, they told me that I was going to hell if I masturbated. They told me that, you know, I should fear God. Um, they, they told me that my best shot was purgatory. He goes, we don't have that anymore. I said, well, I was taught that purgatory is your only shot, and you go there and burn your sins off. And I was told this at eight years old and and nine years old and 10 years old. Um, They duct taped my mouth in school. They tied me to my chair. They paddled me. They made me put my hands out and whack on my hands, right? And he goes, goes, "Um, is that all they did? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I thought he wanted more bad things that they did. And he goes, I, no, those are all horrible. That's child abuse. It's horrible. It's terrible. I wish it never happened to you. But is that all that happened at school for eight years? And I was like, no. And he goes, what was the good? And it started pouring out of me. Like, you know, I just, you know, so many good things came from my Catholic school upbringing. Right, I know respect, discipline, sports, academics. It formed everything that I am. Interest in things. You know, Catholic school was so far advanced in public school at that time in the 60s and 70s. Like I was, they encouraged me to do journalism and do, do anything in science. And it was amazing, Catholic school. Hmm. But... What I chose to take away as the victim mentality drug addict was all the harsh, you know, horrible shit that honestly happened randomly. So one time they duct taped my mouth. This one nun, she was just brutal, right? She told me not to speak. I kept speaking. Um, I kept causing trouble. She went and got duct taped and put it over my mouth. It scares me that she had duct tape. I wouldn't even be able to find duct tape in my garage right now. She probably deserved it, Bob. I did. I'm it starting was, to think. It was like it was like that white that that yellowish tan masking tape, right? But it was thick. It was like two and a half inches, and she put it over my mouth. I I could have pulled it off, but I just was so shocked. Like she put <laughs> she put tape over my mouth. I was like, what the hell just it's actually happened? kind of a genius move. <laughs> You'd like to do that sometimes on the podcast, wouldn't you, you Mike? Know, no, but, uh, no, no. I, man, I tell you, dealing with kids is tough sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So he enlightened me. Like that's what I chose to take away from Catholic school. That was a huge lesson in life that you choose what you walk around with and hold on to, right? right. Yeah, that's right. You what you focus on, you're 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 choosing it. So, so in in brutal childhood stuff, um, I don't know that people are choosing, but but I wasn't being traumatized by that. I just held that stuff as my torches against religion, against the Catholic Church, against everything. And the fact was, taught me most everything I know. I went from K K through eight, right. I mean, you can't, those are the most formative years of a person. So all the inquisitiveness I have, all the kind of interest, all the language skills, I learned from them, right? And I'm not, you know, and I, I, what I try to do now is take that lesson from Father Terry and transfer it to kids and their parents. Like, okay, I know that she's kind of a, you know, you know, your mom's kind of something else, I'll say. But, 
But she's also provided for you in ways that 90% of this population has never, ever experienced. You've had every opportunity in life. You go to the best schools. You have, you have access to, to things that most people don't have. And you need to start to looking at the positive side that comes from your parents instead of always getting... Because I think the treatment industry is so focused on negative... They can't see the positive. Like, just I'll do this. The fact that the kid is in a treatment center seeing someone like me says that the mother is providing or the father or the parents are providing opportunities that nine out of ten people don't have. You know what I mean? Yeah. And no, you got to point, point that out to clients. They just don't understand. If we just sit there and let them whine about their parents or the Catholic Church or whatever and poor baby, poor baby, we're not doing our job. You got to start looking at the world in a different way, in a grateful way, and in pluses and minuses, and 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 opportunities you had that that yes, you had some deficits and some liabilities and some shit was fucked up. You also had a lot of great stuff that was possible and you know came in your life. And when you make kids look like that, like Father Terry made me look at, you start to see a more mature picture of life. And it's, that's the, the thing that people have to look at. But anyways, if you're a counselor working in Ohio, <laughs> please start Don't Die. It'll, it'll help you in ways you, I can, you can't even know. And, and in Pennsylvania and Kentucky and, and Wisconsin is the only other chapter other than our L.A. chapter. Please out there, start Don't Die. Contact Mike. We'll help you in any way we can. <laughs> Mike will produce your podcast via the internet. Yeah. He will. Mike is the podcast <laughs> king now. No. Yeah. Call Mike. Help Call Mike Mart. Call Mike Mart. Send your <laughs> iPhone podcast to Mike and he'll edit it and post it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yay. Yeah, right You're the there. best, Mike. You are the right. best. And so, hey, you know, if they don't die, that's okay with me. We're just trying to reduce the death rate, people, and it starts one addict helping another. That's the only way it's going to solve. The government's not going to solve it. Big Pharma ain't going to solve it. Suboxone ain't going to solve it. Just love and, and, and tenacity and perseverance solves it. People wrote along with me as repulsive and disrespectful and self-pitying and full of shit as I was, and they loved me until I could finally conclude I want a different life. And then they were there to help me. And that's what treatment's supposed to be. That's what AA and NA are supposed to be. And that's hopefully what we're going to kind of try to bring in these, in these pilot programs to Ohio and Pennsylvania. Addicts helping one another. It's all that works. Beautiful. That's, that's I think that's the only it. thing that works. What more yeah. is there to say? Don't that's die. A, that's, a, that's a good wrap up. Well there done. You go. We'll right. talk to you later. Bye. Bye bye. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.